This is David Maggi, Senior Managing Editor of Discourse, an online journal of economics, politics, and culture, published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. In this ninth episode of our series on liberalism, Ben Klutzi, the Director of Academic Outreach here at Mercatus, speaks with Kevin Vallier about the connections between declining social and political trust. They also explore possible solutions for establishing a broad-based civic friendship. Vallier is an associate professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University and is the author of such books as Liberal Politics and Public Faith and Trust in a Polarized Age. His interests lie primarily in philosophy, politics, and economics, as well as in ethics and the philosophy of religion. The audio, as well as the transcript of this conversation, has been slightly edited for clarity. Today, our discussion will focus on trust. How do we build trust in a pluralistic society, particularly when we are so polarized? And we're going to delve right in. Uh, Kevin, when people talk about trust in society, they mean different things. Um, what do you mean by, by trust? And you distinguish between political and social trust. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? Sure, sure. Um, these are pretty common concepts in the literature, but they are, aren't always well-defined. So a lot of what I'm trying to do is to give some sort of precision. So here's why I think about what, what social trust is. Very simply, it's faith that other that strangers will follow established norms. And just to unpack that, um, what we're essentially doing is we're trusting sort of representative members of our society, that is the average kind of person we encounter in our day-to-day lives, to follow certain kinds of social norms or sort of basic moral expectations that we have that people will do things like not steal from us, not lie to us and defraud us. Maybe they'll help us out if we need them. They return, you know, you left your phone in Starbucks, they bring it back to you or something along those lines. And social trust is trust that most people most of the time will follow most of those central norms. So it's trust in society, uh, held by society, but placed in people uh, as individuals. It's not just a do I trust society to act, but do I trust you and you and you and you and you to act. Political trust is trust in institutions. And unlike social trust, we trust political institutions to perform certain functions, to do things, Um, not just to follow general moral rules, but to say increase economic prosperity or preserve economic equality, or more specifically, say, to protect the environment or to collect revenue or to enforce immigration law or something along those lines. So social trust is trust that most people will tend to do what we collectively understand is the right thing most of the time. Political trust is trust that institutions will tend to perform their functions in a way, at least I would add, that seems to uh, uh, reflect concern among members of that institutions, uh, members of those institutions for the, the, the good of the public. So maybe people just perform the function because it's just a ro- robotic thing or they have some malicious intent, in which case it would be hard to trust people if we knew that. So it's something like trusting people to perform outcomes uh, out of goodwill. So when you look at current trends in trust uh, in American society right now, what are you seeing? Well, the commonly understood thing is that political trust in many institutions has been in decline, particularly since the 60s. You know, we've seen, you know, do do most people trust in particular Congress? Numbers have gone down from 80 to 20 percent or something along those lines. Uh, A radical, a radical decline. But that's that's fairly well known. People know that trust in the presidency is very polarized. So, you know, your person's in, you trust the government a lot more than if your person's not in. 
But what's less well understood, because people know are less familiar with the concept of social trust, is that social trust has been on the decline since the early 60s. In fits and starts, but we've gone from around to half of people saying most people can be trusted to about a third. Now, what's wrong with that? And is that a big change? Well, one thing, and I, I point this out in a Wall Street Journal article, is that we're the only established democracy with that kind of precipitous, statistically significant decline. There are some new democracies that have seen big declines, ones that have transitioned from fascism or communism, like, say, Romania, more Chile. And we don't, we don't know exactly why this is. Part of it is people may feel freer to say they don't trust. They may have more mass communication so that they can see more people aren't necessarily doing what they ought to be doing. It could even be that people were overpromised the benefits of democracy and they're disappointed or that people start to blame political outcomes on people who voted for the other party rather than just the military, you know, cadre or whatever it would be. We don't know why. But in established democracies, social trust is very stable. And for there to be this big of a decline is pretty unusual. Now, why do we care about that? Well, social trust is connected to all kinds of empirically well-established social goods. Uh, economic growth, economic equality, uh, lower corruption in the legal system, even things like psychological well-being. So in losing social trust, we're losing all kinds of things that everybody cares about. So the, the decline in trust in, in the American society is quite substantial, and you alluded to the fact that it's not very clear why that's been the case. Do you have any intuitions at all about yeah. why we've seen this steep decline? Well, we try to look at some data in addition to tuition, and I cover these in the book, but also there's just a very accessible version of it, Wall Street Journal. And there's a couple of things that people sometimes cite that I think don't work. So I'll just talk about those. One is, oh, there's more ethnic diversity. It turns out that ethnic diversity doesn't have uh, very much, if any, a negative effect on, on social trust just in itself. You have to divide it up geographically, not by area, but by how easy it is to encounter the racial diversity. Let's just give an example. Suppose we admitted Puerto Rico as the 51st state. That would increase U.S. ethnic diversity, but it wouldn't affect social trust at all because the ethnic diversity is isolated, right? It's on an island somewhere. <laughs> all the same, if you're in an interracial marriage, let's say that's not that kind of interracial contact, that diversity is not going to reduce social trust. And it's also the case that workplace diversity doesn't look like it decreases social trust either because people have to work together on common projects. Here's what really matters, local segregation. So if there's the you know Jewish block and the Italian block and the Irish block, then you can get real problems. You've got a lot of ethnic diversity residentially within you know 75 to 100 meters in particular. Um, you can get real declines in social trust. But that degree of ethnic segregation hasn't changed very much. If anything, it's gone down. So, I mean, we still have a lot of effective residential segregation through things like redlining, but um, it just hasn't changed that much. So it's not the thing to explain the decline, um, even that very specific kind of ethnic diversity. Other people cite increases in economic inequality, and indeed there have been increases uh, in economic inequality. It's not entirely clear why. People dispute how much, how much of it is a measurement error that comes from, you know, there being more single family households now. But even when you adjust for that stuff, there's been a, there's been a real increase in economic inequality. The idea is people sort of look at those indicators. They say, oh, well, my society is less fair, so I don't trust it as much. Well, there's a, there's, there's a, there's a bunch of problems with this. First, if internet, if nationwide 
racial inequality isn't affecting social trust very much. I think it's harder to see how economic inequality uh, is somehow doing a huge amount of work at the same time. Lots of people could say, look, the other racial group has got it better than me, so I trust my society less. You know, I, the idea that one's going to move things in a huge way and the other's not going to move it much at all, it's not very plausible. It's going to probably be local increases in economic inequality. It's like your neighbors get richer than you are. Or someone down the street, down the block is much richer. And I think most people don't say, oh, Bill Gates, he has so much more money now, I'm going to trust everybody less. It's also the case, though, in pretty careful analysis that it looks like uh, the causal direction goes from more trust to less inequality. Because when you trust people more, you tend to have a stronger preference for redistribution. Because you don't think they're the recipients of the transfers are sneaky people who are going to misuse it on booze and alcohol. And so societies that are higher trust just don't mind redistribution as much and tend to support it more. So there is a correlation between economic inequality and, and social trust, to be sure. But that's the better direction of explanation. Those are really the two main uh, things that are, are cited that I think don't work. And so now we're trying to look at factors that do. There's been some very interesting research that's come out in just the last couple of weeks looking at employment scarring. So people who aren't employed for periods of time may become less trusting. But I think there's evidence to suggest that Actually, people's social trust attitudes don't change very much after um, they're, say, 30 or so. So maybe if they experience bad unemployment when they're young, that that can cause a problem. I do think in the lab you can show that people's trust attitudes temporarily can change. But we don't have evidence yet, and we've got a good counter evidence that social trust attitudes tend to be pretty stable once you reach adulthood. There's something going on in people's experience when they're younger. Something's happening. Some people think that declining trust in political institutions is having an effect. There is some evidence of this, but I think it's actually because political trust is highly polarized. I think what's going on is that the gradual dissolution of the cultures of the country, of the groups of the country from kind of seeing themselves as kind of having one national interest to there being kind of two tribes is actually having an effect because I think what people are thinking is, well, you know, I can trust my tribe, but the other tribe, I'm doubtful. And there's some, there is extreme partisan distrust. I mean, 2017, 70% of Democrats say they distrust people who voted for Trump. That's not just distrusting Trump. That's anyone who voted for him. And the, the exact reverse was true. 70% of Republicans said they distrust most people who voted for Hillary. And my, my basic thought is just that you can see in lots of situations where in-group, out-group dynamics or trust decreasing, something's going on on a national scale. We've seen a great increase in political polarization unheard of in, in, in contemporary other countries to this degree. There have been a few countries that have gotten a little bit more polarized, like the UK. They haven't become less socially trusting. There have been a few countries. There's one country that seems to have experienced some increases in polarization and some decreases in social trust at the same time, but they're very mild, and that's Switzerland. So we've got this unique pattern. There are other things that don't explain it. There's some plausible underlying mechanisms. So my view is that distrust and increasing polarization making each other worse. There's lots of mechanisms I could review, but that's the basic idea. I see. I want to come back to that because I want you to place that in the in the context of the trust divergence hypothesis that you, yep. you, you talk about. Uh, but before that, if I wanted to learn more about where trust is trending, where do I go? Do I look at the General Society survey? World Value Survey, what's the best way to learn about trends? 
I have a little blog post on my blog Reconciled, which um, I'm about to pick back up on pretty regularly. And there I have a little I have a little chart where I average the World Value Survey, the General Social Survey, and the American National Election Survey. So if you just Google Valier Reconciled Social Trust Declines, you'll see the graph where I average everything. It's the only graph I've ever seen where somebody averaged all the numbers. I don't know why, but it's mostly because people just look at the General Social Survey or just the World Value Survey, or if they're looking regionally, they look at what's called like the Euro Barometer for European countries or the Latino Barometer, Latin American countries, Afro Barometer, uh, and so on. So I put together the numbers in the United States from the three survey banks. What about lab experiments? This is very interesting. Okay, so um, what's going on in the lab is that essentially you're put in a kind of prisoner's dilemma, which is, you know, a, a basic situation where it's in your collective interest to cooperate, but it's in your individual interest to defect. And so what is mutually beneficial is not individually rational. But if there's a certain level of trust, the thought is, you'll engage in the cooperative behavior despite your individual incentives, because you trust that other people are going to act cooperatively. So what happens is in a trust game, you play a kind of sequential prisoner's dilemma. You can, what's, you, you split a pot, you cooperate. If the other person cooperates, you'll get more. But if the other person defects, there's a, there's a smaller payoff. So in, in essence, what's going on is someone's offering a certain sum they're being trusting and they're making an estimate of someone else's trustworthiness based on how they respond in the next move. Okay, so you, just a prisoner's dilemma, you're playing two steps. Now, that's supposed to also be a measure of trust. And it's one that economists place more stock in generally because the political science literature survey data and the economist attitude is, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Talk is cheap. So let's look at the, let's trust the lab results more. And then political scientist says these are totally devoid of context. Uh, there's lots of other considerations going on for people in the lab that are oftentimes robotic um, you're not expecting consistent interaction. There's no cultural norms at stake in the same way that there are in the surveys. But here's the nice thing. While the data between the lab and the surveys don't correlate well at small stakes, it looks like they start to converge at higher stakes. So it looks like the two modes of measurement do seem to start to be related. But there's not been a lot of work on this yet. The main thing I cite is a 2014 paper that tried for higher stakes in the trust game. And then there's a better correlation with the with the survey data. So my sense is people aren't playing very seriously at lower stakes, but then when you ask them their, their view, they give their, they give their honest view about most people. Most people are willing to complain about most people. So, so that's the hope is those two measures converge at higher stakes. I think that makes a certain kind of sense. Right. Right. So can you talk about the trust divergence hypothesis? You you said a little bit about it earlier, but if you can unpack that first, that'd be great. Sure, sure. So the distrust divergence hypothesis is that trust is falling because of increasing what I call partisan divergence and vice versa. So what's partisan divergence? Well, partisan divergence is a term I use for many kinds of polarization and what are called sorting. So polarization is you change your mind in some way, where sorting is you just start to hang out with people that are more like you. Now, there's two kinds of polarization, issue-based, where we change our minds on issues, and affect-based, where we become more hostile to the other group. We've seen some issue-based polarization primarily among elites, and we've seen a huge amount of effective polarization in the general public, but especially among elites. But there's also issue-based sorting, where you hang around people that agree with you more. There's less of that. But there's affect-based sorting, where people hate the other group and so start to congregate only with their own group. I refer to all four of those phenomena as partisan divergence. 
So my claim is that social and political distrust are feeding into partisan divergence. Partisan divergence is feeding into lower and lower distrust. So I think we're caught in a kind of feedback loop. That's the hypothesis for which I provide some evidence. The difficulty with the evidence is that a lot of the, the data on trust that's fine-grained enough to do anything with is new, and a lot of the data on polarization, where people are really looking carefully at measures of like affective polarization, is pretty new as well. And the further trouble is that there's no one, and I've looked, I've said on other, this on other podcasts that people have looked and reached out to me and can't find anything, that tries to line up the trust data and the polarization measures to really run the numbers, to do you know some pretty serious regressions. But I'm working with a co-author right now on that. So a lot of what I say is bringing together all the evidence we have, even up to 2019, and I think that support the hypothesis. But we're going to start getting really good, solid, robust empirical tests to the hypothesis as well. Maybe I turn out to be wrong. I'm okay with that. The hope is, though, that even if trust and polarization aren't making each other worse off, that the solutions I suggest in the book will still restore trust, which is still great. (laughs) And I think there's plenty of evidence for that. But it might be the case that polarization just gets worse and worse and worse, even if restore trust. That's almost unimaginable to me because I think, you know, cognitively, when you trust people, it's harder to be polarized, right? Like it's harder to hate people you trust. It's also harder to ignore the opinions of people that you trust, right? So like it just seems so intuitively plausible to me that more trust would mean less polarization of either variety. And so intensely also plausible that, you know, if you have high trust, you know, um, or if you have less polarization, it's easier to trust people. Right. Uh, let, the less different you are on certain issues, unless you hate each other, the easier it is to form trust attitudes. So it just seems to me psychologically, things like hate by affect and trust are so intimately connected that they ought to really be going together to some degree. But again, I can be wrong. But the hope is we can look within our current institutions, find modes of reform to increase trust, and that would also help to break the cycle if, as I believe, based on, I think, good evidence and modeling that they're connected. I see. So they're they're sort of reinforcing each other. Yes, that's the idea. Yeah. You, you talk about what facilitates social trust. Uh, there were a few that were a little surprising. Um, you've already talked about a couple of them, diversity and so on. But monarchy um, yeah. you know, is a robust determinant of social trust. And I, I was quite surprised by that. And I'm sure you wouldn't find anyone uh, advocating for uh you know, bringing a monarchy uh, in, in our society. I'm actually writing my next book on the new Catholic integralists, many of whom are monarchists. I see. So, but there are very few of them. So I'm, I am, uh, these are sort of like the new right intellectuals, like the, the, the folks kind of behind a lot of the Trump, Trump stuff. So you do find you know, like the, they're, they're not the same as the neo reaction crowd that are also monarchs, monarchists and stuff, but your point's well taken. I, unfortunately I do know monarchists, but <laughs> The case that monarchy being a robust determinant is in the there are almost no actually effective monarchs that are politically powerful, right? So all the data is from societies that have relatively toothless monarchs. So why would why would that matter? They can't even do anything. Well, I think there's a there's, here's the explanation. You have a head of state that's expected to be politically neutral for historical reasons. They have been disempowered, so the country can be a democracy. And folks like Queen Elizabeth just don't talk politics. You know, they don't get involved. And so you have a head of state and everybody can say, hey, there's someone we all like, you know, and I don't know what they think politically, but they're pretty good. We don't have that many people in the U.S. We basically got Dolly Parton. <laughs> that's 
That's like it. You know, there's nobody who hasn't taken a side. You know, we don't have any high status people that are robustly and rigorously neutral. I mean, many of the most popular people are people like Michelle Obama, who's like obviously has a view or, you know, like just extremely popular celebrities. Like you could you just know that they're going to be on the left. You just know that, you know, societies with politically neutral. And I, I gather Queen Elizabeth is quite personally and religiously, quite personally conservative I've I've come to understand that she's quite pious, takes her role as the head of the Church of England quite seriously, you know, but she's extremely self-controlled. So I think her reign, as it is, is a way to say there's somebody above the fray. There's somebody who's not taking sides. So that's the thought. Very interesting. On political trust, though, and, and, and the things that facilitate that, you say that democracies depend on a certain degree of political distrust. So there's a healthy skepticism about political leadership. So then low political trust may not lead to crisis of legitimacy for democratic governance. Is that the silver lining? Yeah. I mean, so the real problem is a decline in social trust. But the real problem with that is we don't have a theory about how social trust is formed. So I have this one new project on these kind of new right intellectuals, but for my my very next book, but the book after that, I want to be developing a theory of social trust learning because we don't have a good one. I and mean, I just want to bring a whole lot of different disciplines together to try to get it figured out. But we, we don't know much. But in determinants of political trust, we know we, we know uh, quite a bit more. And it, it does turn out, though, that in a democracy, what you want is a lot of people to trust in democracy. They trust that the democratic process is such a street. That's why the voter fraud stuff is so pernicious. Because you want people to be able to trust in the system so there can be peaceful transferals of power, and we don't have a revolt in the capital every time there's an election. And this is supposed to be one of the advantages of having a democracy is peaceful transitions of power. So if you have someone sowing massive distrust, that's a problem. So you want people to trust the system, broadly speaking, like, okay, we're going to keep democracy. We like democracy. Most people are pretty big fans of democracy. The problem with the capital rioters isn't that they hated democracy. It's that they had wildly, irresponsibly false beliefs about whether democracy had performed correctly because they put their stock in the wrong media sources for reasons I'm still trying to sort through because media trust is the main thing I left out of the book because we don't know enough, but it's like incredibly important. So you want people to trust in democracy, but you don't want them to completely trust the office holders because the worry is if you have total trust, you're just not going to reassess what they're doing and you're not going to pay as much attention to when they're bad. So what you want is you want very high trust in the democratic process, but you want middling trust in officials. Now, why not say, well, don't trust them at all? You know, I mean, I've been a libertarian a long time and I'm telling people to trust the government. They're like, well, what's wrong with you? You know, and I'm saying, look, if you trust a politician zero, that doesn't mean they're going to behave better. It doesn't mean they're going to be friendlier to markets. Just give me a very simple example. Someone take a politician who is distrusted, who prefers, who argues in favor of deregulation versus a politician that is trusted. Who's going to be more effective at getting us closer to markets? The one who's at least somewhat trusted. See, libertarians spend so much time sowing distrust in the government. But the truth is, market reforms are unpopular. So you want there to be pro-market politicians who are trusted so they can say, look, I know maybe it's not obvious how this will work, but I thought about it. I've listened to the experts. This is really how Sweden was able to move sharply away from democratic socialism. They didn't cut social spending, but they deprivatized, deregulated, cut taxes. They have a public school voucher system for the schools. I mean, they moved in a market direction in a big way. In our country, if someone said, let's cut taxes, let's have a voucher system, let's privatize things. 
You know, let's deregulate massively. Democratic socialism isn't working for us. People would say, oh, you must be a servant of the great Coke, you know. Um, but in that country, in Sweden, people can say, okay, like, I don't agree with this, but you, I mean, you say what you think and, you know, we'll just have an election. You know, it's not like you, everybody trusts each other. In fact, political trust in Sweden isn't all that high, but it's fundamentally different than in the U.S. because, you know, it's not like Swedish politics is perfectly peaceful, but there's like a sense where someone can propose something. And even in the 70s, you know, people can come forward and say, yeah, you know, the civil aeronautics board is just really inefficient. We've listened to The Economist, deregulating the airlines is probably a good idea. And Jimmy Carter and Ted Kennedy say, hey, let's abolish the Department of the Government. Who does? I mean, so so losing political trust is bad from a limited government perspective. Now, if you have more trust, you know, people may trust more in redistribution or something like that. But the, the countries that tend to be high in political trust that we think is not based on propaganda and lying, as I think it is in China, they tend to be capitalist welfare states. So you get pretty good markets and you get a lot of redistribution. So libertarians kind of have mixed feelings. But my view is that capitalist welfare states are pretty good because you can get quick growth. And in the end, what matters in the long run for human prosperity and innovation is just broad-based economic growth and experimentation over time. Maybe some redistribution kind of slows things up, guns things up, reduces incentives. So maybe that's a problem. But a lot of the way that Sweden does things is actually a lot more efficient because there's higher trust. So there's just less so much less corruption. It's also the case that they have these like universal benefits programs so that, you know, rich people are invested. So they get on the phone and complain if something goes wrong or people anticipate that they will. So, you know, you don't have a, you don't have a bunch of poor people just having to figure out how to work everything by themselves. So we could redistribute in, in more effective ways that were more efficient. And it's, it's also the case that there are lots of subtle ways in which like state pension systems can appeal to market prices and things that it's not just it's not just the welfare state. So sometimes we we think that these things are too. We, we, we say, oh, there's markets and then there's socialism when there's all these subtle combinations. And some some combinations of the two are terrible, like our healthcare system. But there are other combinations like Singapore's healthcare system, which is magnificent and cheap. So, you know, the truth is that libertarians and limited government people have to have a subtler attitude towards trust in government. They just have to. And also, we just shouldn't sow distrust in government in general. It should be like, okay, can we trust this or that? Don't trust ICE. Park Service. <laughs> hey, you can trust the Park Service. They do a pretty good, well, they do a pretty good job. They're not so bad, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean... <laughs> you know, so so right. so we need to be we need to be subtler. But in a democracy, you want big time trust in democracy and the process. You want middling, not low, not high trust in officials. That's what's I think socially optimal. Great. Now, you also talk about individual economic performance, and that uh -huh. you know, when it's strong, people become more politically trusting, and when you know people observe yeah. low quality governance. The yeah, political trust yep. falls. Do you also find that trust divides along racial lines? You know, when there are certain minorities whose economic performances aren't so strong, you know, yep. you see that uh, trust declines in, in those communities. Yeah, yeah. So one thing that people expect the government to do is to bring about prosperity for them. And so their estimates of their subjective economic performance, which is not always accurate, 
does affect their level of trust in government because that's something they expect. Now, if you go to folks on the left, they expect a little bit more. So they expect more equality as well as more growth, whereas people on the right are less concerned about that, which isn't surprising at all, right? And as societies get richer, they also tend to care about non-material stuff more, like the treatment of, you know, racial minorities and things like that. So that will that will start as societies get more post-materialist, they start to care more about social and cultural goals. And actually for a while when people were riding on this, they were thinking about post-materialists being primarily adopting left-wing values, where I think now with populism, we're seeing actually the adoption of kind of more right-wing cultural values and people trusting government based more on whether they fight cancel culture or big tech or something like that. But the main thing right now still is the sense that government's performing, in particular that it's producing economic growth for people, economic prosperity for people. And there's some people who've prospered less and who trust less. Although, I mean, one, I'm, I'm going to be working on some, some research on poverty and trust levels. We're working for some grant in a major in a major metropolitan area to look at trust levels and poverty in different uh, minority communities. That, that would be interesting, too, because we tend to hear that, you know, locally trust is higher than, you know, nationally. That's right. That's right. But um, if you if you look at trust in, in social trust levels in the black community in particular, about 17% of Black Americans say most people can be trusted, which is about 44% of whites. Um, and if you look at the breakdowns of trust levels by state, the further south you get, the worse things look. Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana are low, and that's because Black trust is low. Now, Black Americans trust each other a great deal, but it, it is a really dramatic negative effect because essentially here's what I think the dynamic is. The distrust of the, of the population is well-grounded in many ways. In, in a history of you know, massive harms, this is actually true in different countries. Like if you live in parts of China where there was, you know, the massive famine, those people are still less trusting to this day. So, so negative trust experiences harden in early adulthood; they affect you your entire life. So, you know, as long as kids are experiencing racial discrimination in really, really obvious ways from police, from jail, um, from people trying to take away their votes. You're just going to have low trust. But the the horrible thing here, and this is what in philosophy we might call an epistemic injustice, is that because the black community is less trusting, it hurts them economically. So um, one of the things we're trying to figure out is how can you get communities out of poverty that are low trust, but the com- it, communities being low trust means that they're they're going to take fewer economic risks because they don't know who they can depend on. So it's a kind of horrible horrible situation where you get poor marginalized communities that are low trust and they can't get out of it and it hurts them and their lower trust. So that's one of the things we're trying to figure out. Well, how social trust learn and transmitted? And if we had a theory of that, then maybe we could start to solve that problem. But that goes beyond the current book. That's the next big social science thing I want to do. Right. Immigration. That's, that's an interesting one with regards to political trust. And you know that perceived size of immigrant groups has negative effects on political trust, but actual size does not. Yeah, yeah. As far as we can tell, I mean, we're we're really only getting good data uh, recently that's really compelling in terms of there being vast numbers of refugees and people really rigorously trusting trust levels of there. And, you know, the way the news draws attention to it's just a really big deal. I mean, if think about it, the, suppose that there was just no way to know who was immigrating, right? And then, you know, just gradually over time, you live somewhere and all of a sudden there's just more and more and more Latinos, right? But it just, you that's probably for, for, for many, you know, like native whites, that's going to 
be trust reducing now, but no one reports on that. Okay. Okay. Now imagine the reverse. Imagine like there's a very, 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 very small number of severe criminals among immigrants and a certain news channel decides to report on them all the time, all the time. Right. That will probably be more trust reducing in government than the reverse. You could probably have a million immigrants from Mexico come in over a 10 year period and it would reduce trust less than a single gang getting in and killing two or three people and the media reporting on it. Um, this is one reason why media trust is so central. And one reason I've become more pessimistic uh, since I started writing the book, because I don't know how to reform the media environment to get it to report more accurately on stuff. It's one reason I'm preferring local news more these days, because I think it's both easier to trust it and it's easier to verify when it's wrong because it's reporting on local stuff. But then where do you get good national reporting? And the answer is, I don't know. So I don't, and I don't have good policies. I'm like flirting with the idea of, you know, like uh, uh, some weird ideas, but I, I don't really know what to think. I've been starting to think about social media reforms and what will be legitimate and what wouldn't. And but I, my thinking's only just begun on these things. So, right. So you um, advocate for liberal rights practices that yes. create and sustain trust for the right reasons. What what are these these practices? Yeah, so a little bit about trust for the the trust for the right reason standard. So I I think it's just plain that we don't want to trust people based on bad reasons, like that we're being lied to, right? We want to trust for the right kinds of reasons. Well, what are those? Well, we want to trust people because they're actually trustworthy <laughs> with respect to the things we're trusting them to do, right? And when we trust people, we don't just want them to do the thing we trust them to do, but we want we do want them to do it because they respect us or have some kind of concern for us, or at least that they're somewhat ethical, right? Like if we found out someone was doing what we predicted, but they were a psychopath or a robot, you know, then we wouldn't be able to to trust them, right? So we want people to, we want to trust because we think others are trustworthy out of some kind of goodwill or something like that. So we're not going to say, oh, let's get trust by like having like massive propaganda, right? What we want is to create and encourage a system of social practices, encourages people to be trustworthy and then lets other people kind of know and and see that that's what's going on. So, so, so take one example of freedom of association. The details here are actually pretty complicated. But the thought here is that if you're a member of an engaged association, not an isolated one that, that teaches you the world out there is bad, but yeah, you know, maybe put you, you're in a church and they put you in a soup kitchen, right? You interact with poor people, you know, and people with, with different cultures who speak different languages, particularly if you're younger. If we protect freedom of association and we continue, I think, to give certain kinds of tax breaks and benefits to people who are engaged in service, that those that associational life, the practice, the exercise of freedom of association is trust generating. Now, the data is complicated because in the early 90s, people were like, oh, yeah, you're going to get way more trust if you have people more involved in associations. But then it started to look like that high trusters were high joiners. So like if you were trusting, you were going to join stuff, whereas if you weren't, you weren't. So the correlation was not causal. But now there is some evidence that if you disaggregate the types of organizations, that the ones where you are actually in positive contact with people can be trust promoting. So maybe freedom of association is misused and people just balkanize and retreat. You know, the thought, the thought is that that's a rights practice where I think most people end up interacting with people more than if they just stick in their home. 
and so having robust freedom of association to experiment with lots of associations, to interact with people in the different associations, that's a good liberal rights practice. People come to see that others are trustworthy. They cooperate with them in a way that looks like trust for the right reasons, not trust for the wrong reasons. So we didn't force it. We didn't do propaganda. We just gave people some a liberty. They tended to exercise it in a way that was trust promoting. Markets are another case. And here I'm talking about robust protections for legal private property rights. I'm not saying anything about taxes. Okay. What I'm saying is people, if they're stolen from, they can get help. There's clear property titles. They can get a mortgage on their house. They can buy, you know, I don't know, you're around my age. You probably watched The Simpsons growing up. Maybe not. But, you know, there's all this, there's this one episode where, you know, bar seating is crusty O's and there's like a toy inside, which is, you know, a razor blade crusty O, basically. And, you know, we, we, we buy this Cheerios and we want, there's like, not like a razor blade crusty O in there, right? Like we trust that that's not there. So when we have an exchange experience, it's not a disaster, right? <laughs> Something terrible didn't happen, right? And, and, you know, we're not defrauded and so on. So, it, and it's not like, you don't want an economy where everything's like the used car salesman. Right. Like that's just a situation that just engenders distrust. Most of that's getting, you know, helped a lot with Carfax and online markets and stuff like that. So, you know, the market's been solving a lot of those, a lot of those problems, but, you know, there's still issues. But most markets aren't like that. Right. You go to the supermarket, you buy stuff, cashier's nice to you go. Right. Now, why is that trust promoting? Why is that trust promoting? Well, you're able to benefit yourself in a peaceful, reliable way with others who are mostly kind of either are indifferent to you or bearing you goodwill. Like, it really bothers us when someone's, a cashier is mean, you know, like we, you really hate that. It can kind of mess up your day. Um, maybe not if you grew up in New York City or something or Chicago, but, uh, it, you know, we're most, you know, the norms are different and people are just a little nastier to each other. So it's not seen as a sign of distrust of, of people being, you know, but, you know, for the most part in societies that robustly protect market freedoms, that positive exchange opportunities are trust building opportunities. So that's another way in which the exercise of property property rights are trust building. But for the listeners on the left out there, I'm not saying you can't have lots of redistribution to get this effect. You just it's well protected legal property rights. So maybe it doesn't look like tax rates affect trust levels unless they do so in a very indirect way by like reducing economic growth. But then that's impossible to detect in the data. I mean, yes, I think if you had 100 percent taxes, trust would go down. <laughs> right. Everyone would just become extremely poor and tear each other apart. So, yes, I mean, obviously tax races will 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 affect trust. <laughs> it's just, you know, at the margins of differences across high trust societies, I don't think it matters that much. The, the protection of legal property rights, however, absolutely essential. But then you create an environment of positive exchange and reinforcement. People who live in market societies tend to have a lot higher social trust levels, in part for that reason, in part the reverse. You, high social trust societies are just better at building and sustaining a not, you know, impartial markets. You know, it's interesting to work there. Then, you know, there is the welfare state, at least the provision of really basic forms of economic security. So some of this very new data that didn't make it into the book about trust, uh, employment, unemployment scarring, reducing trust. The idea uh, here is that, you know, your kid being able, particularly your, your kids being able to get like basic food, health care, so you grow up and you didn't go hungry needlessly, right? You didn't get sick with an easy, you know, an easily treatable disease, or if you did, you were easily treated. <laughs> that you had access to basic education, you know, you had basic opportunities. I think people who grow up with that 
are going to be more trusting than people who don't grow up with those kinds of security. Now, you know, I think markets go a long way to providing those forms of security, but that sometimes government has to act. And people see that, right? People see that. They see that there's Head Start, right? They see that government's, you know, helping them out with food. And that most people, almost nobody actually really is bothered by this. If that was all the welfare state did was feed poor people, even only the most hard-bitten libertarian would be bothered, and they wouldn't be bothered that much because they would be way more focused on war and civil liberties and stuff like that. that. Stuff that actually is like way more of an issue even for libertarians. Radical ones, right. So you got to have some economic security and you've got to see society's institutions moving together to provide that economic security for people who really can't help themselves. Now, if you're given, if it's perceived that you're giving money to people who are wasting it and who are irresponsible, that can be trust decreasing, uh, particularly trust in, in, in government. So you got to be careful about how you do it. Uh, and universal programs tend to be better than mean-tested ones in lots of respects. Maybe. The data on this is a little shaky, but but I think I think it makes sense. So basic economic security rights, that's also very important. Two other things, you want parliamentary rule of law. That is, representatives make make new policies in accord with them having roughly equal voting power, the process being non-corrupt and predictable, right? Like you kind of know that people aren't just going to embezzle all the money. And you might say, oh, government's so wasteful. Yes, but there's a big difference between Brazil and Sweden in this regard, where Swedish social trust is like 65%, Brazilian social trust is like 5%. So that's like the biggest one of the biggest differences. There's there's like governments that are corrupt and there's governments that are corrupt. You know what I mean? And, you know, this is one of the things Tyler Cowen says, the, the great libertarian advice is thinking the supply of good governance is fixed. But, you know, there, some countries are much better governed than others and trust has a lot to do with that. So you, you, want, you want basic parliamentary democracy with the rule of law and restrictions on, you know, kinds of gross forms of corruption and rent seeking. And they're okay, you know, the market folks are like, oh, yeah, no, that's correct. Like rule of law with low rent seeking, that's fine. But it's also got to, people got to be able to see that they have some input, like that they can have some effect on the process. So if you just complete, if you just had like pure epistocracy where it was only the rule of the people who were wise and who knew things, that would be trust decreasing because people would think, look, I don't have any role in this. People aren't letting me have a say. And then they expect to have a say. Like maybe if you were in a culture where that was just so hierarchical and monarchical or whatever that people didn't expect that, maybe it wouldn't affect trust. But in, a, in, in societies where people broadly think of themselves as equals, if they don't even feel like they have a nominal voice, then they're just not going to trust in that process as much. Uh, and you're not going to get as much trust out of the results of that process either. So you want the parliamentary rule of law. You also want good, open, stable elections. So there's, there's parliamentary democracy where policies are democratically chosen, and then there's elections where officials are democratically chosen. And in that case, there's a bunch of problems because people don't know very much politically, and so they don't always make the best decisions. Um, and then so there's questions about, well, you know, I mean, people do need to feel like they're able to actually choose their leaders in a very basic way. Even if you don't like democracy all that much, just about everybody agrees that it's, there are all these instrumental goods, right? Like, again, peaceful transitions of power. So, you know, you can replace, you know, if things get super, super, super bad, you can punish the party, replace one power elite with another power elite. Okay. Just about everyone thinks that's better. There are a few people, as you said, who are mon true monarchists, right? And th they're just having fun. I mean, I don't think they'd really go for it. Those are the liberal rights practices. Those are the big five. That's the bulk of the book. Associations, markets, welfare state, and democracy at the parliamentary and electoral levels.
Right. And, and so, you know, towards the end, you say that we should, you know, begin a, a process of, of reform mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. to start fostering trust in society. And, and the first thing you identify, this is in the epilogue, the first thing you identify is that, you know, fight, we, sh- we have to fight our own distrust of, of our political opponents, uh, yes. which is where I, I think it's it's similar to some of the things that Robert Talese is talking about in his book, Overdoing oh, yeah. Democracy. Yep. Um, yep. And he says that, you know, we were very polarized. And the first step is to recognize to 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 what extent we ourselves have been uh, subjected to uh, polarization. Yep. So it, I it's, agree with it's Bob 100 percent introspection there. Yeah, that's a big part of How it. Do you do Policy that? changes have to come to institutional forms have to happen. Um, and I try to back some of that up. I, I'm not able to get into a huge amount of detail because I'm doing both the empirics and the moral philosophy, you know, the political philosophy of justifying these institutions. I don't get to go into as much detail as I'd like. There are some policy reforms, some of which are surprising, um, like housing deregulation. But yeah, internally, we do have to engage in a process of correction. And Bob is right that it's easier when you're members of cross-cutting associations. So you're actually interacting with people on a non-political basis. So I think that's pretty important. Yeah. Now switching gears a little bit, you're you're a philosopher. What got you into studying trust? Oh, it's a pretty interesting series of of questions. And the weird thing is it happened five or six years ago and 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 like I I'm worried I I don't entirely like it happened in so many small steps. There wasn't like an aha moment. So a lot of it was just trying to think about like what the basis of liberal order even is like what's the best justification for it and i'm not a consequentialist so i didn't want to just look at just them having good effects i wanted to say that there was something just about liberal order uniquely just justified about liberal order uh independent of its 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 consequences consequences is part of the story but it's not the whole story for for just familiar reasons so then the question was well how do you ground these constraints on what government should do. Like, for instance, why is it the case that the government shouldn't take sides on which religion is true, right? Like, suppose some religion is true. I think that it is, but I still oppose it taking sides because I think it would be unfair to people who have, who are wrong. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, I wouldn't want them to treat me that way, right? So it's some kind of reciprocity. Well, so then the question was, well, when, when do those duties apply, like of, of reciprocity and fairness and so on? If we're in a war zone, they don't apply, right? Like you just have to win, right? And so I thought, okay, well, what are the conditions under which these constraints, these moral constraints seem to have their natural home and, and what are conditions where they don't? And my, the answer I gradually came to, especially through reading Locke, was he, he talks a whole lot about the idea of public trust and people have, just don't see it. It's in there like dozens and dozens of times the second treatise. And I just started to think, okay, well, what's the difference between a society that's in a state of war and a society that isn't? And when these kind of moral constraints would apply when we're not in a warlike situation. And so I start, then, then I started to think, well, you know, really, you know, we're not going to all be civic friends, you know, what we're the, the kind of relationship that we could hope to have with each other when we disagree about so much is just, is just trust. And I thought, oh, well, people study that. That's cool. Like that's so we can actually study that empirically and bring together not just the philosophical reflections, but with the actual empirical study. So I thought, okay, that would be cool. I'll start reading in trust. And then it just turned out there was all this incredibly cool empirical information. And as a guy who runs a philosophy, politics, economics program and is committed to that methodology and bringing together, you know, the empirics and uh, modeling, economic modeling with, with the philosophy, I thought, oh, wow. So now we have this 
trust-based case for liberal order, they both works out in the level of theory, but can be backed up by practice. And so that's where the two trust books came from. The previous volume, which does the heavy-duty philosophy, and this volume, which does some heavy-duty philosophy, probably too much for most readers now that I've been get, talking to people about it, but also a lot of empirical stuff, which is what everyone wants to talk about, so I'm glad it's there. But the whole big trust project was to integrate the interdisciplinary study of trust into the liberal tradition and to show the way in which the study, systematic, again, multidisciplinary study of trust, buttressed the case for free institutions. So that's how it all came together in, in fits and starts. You know, in light of January 6th, you know, the, the, the question I always ask, like, my guess is, uh, you know, are you optimistic about, about the future mm-hmm. of, you know, liberalism, broadly speaking, or I guess in, in this context, trust, uh, are, are we going to get, get uh, better? Uh, in, in my conversation with Robert Talese, he said that, you know, you know, at some point people will get exhausted from, from all the polarization and may realize that, you know, we need to start engaging with one another again um, in, in sort of a, a civic way. So, um, yeah, are, are you optimistic about the future? Are, are things going to be better in terms of uh, trust, trusting one another? Oh, 416, I was, I was optimistic. But I didn't realize until that moment. I thought all of these people were just having fun on the Internet. Like, I didn't think they were actually going to show up and try to hurt people. You know what I mean? Right. Get some people killed. I think most I, people didn't think that. Yeah. Yeah. So so I didn't realize just how intense and horrible these little these little ideological rabbit holes had gotten. And I think a lot of people, most people were very, very surprised. Even, even I think, Trump supporters, so much so that they wouldn't even believe it. I had family members who were like, oh, that must be Antifa. Our people would never do that. So, although that's, of course, part of the problem is that you, you won't even believe the basic facts. And that's why these people were there in the first place, because they wouldn't, wouldn't believe the basic facts. What it made me hyper-focused on was media trust and how I just hadn't thought enough about it because I didn't know what to do about it in a way that wouldn't violate the First Amendment. And so since then, I've been thinking a lot about social media and its effects on trust, but it's so new as a social force that you know, the data is is mixed. And I think it varies a lot by platform. So, I mean, I think Facebook's not as bad as Twitter. I mean, Twitter's pretty much there to create balkanized sub-communities that are incredibly nasty to one another and nasty internally when they de- to deviate from internal norms. So it's just a whole din of nasty. And I believe that constant Twitter use is is probably trust-reducing because people focus on the negative all the time. And it's also probably worse for believing, well, in many ways, it's, you believe, you know the immediate news stories, but in terms of having like true non-ideological beliefs about the world, it may actually be worse. But I think the worst, worst, worst is cable news. Because at least on Twitter, you can, you easily or immediately will see because of the algorithm, people's views who disagree with you. And at least they get to formulate their view. Whereas on many of the cable news networks, it's just a total closed circuit. Even though they bring on, you know, someone on the other side, it, there's no time to go into any detail. And so I think Twitter's probably better than cable news. And I, but I'm really worried about One America News. I'm really worried about them because that is a whole new level of a closed circuit epistemic environment. I mean, a lot of the Fox News people. Because I think right now the, the issues are worst on the right. They've been, you know, maybe you can make a case that they're worse on the left with the Mueller situation if you want to. But 
setting that aside, right now I think the issue is clearly worse than the right. You know, the Fox News journalists, setting the pundits aside, the Fox News journalists, they're real journalists. They've gone to journalism school. They know journalistic ethics. They've worked at different channels. They know different people. They're, you know, they've got really good standards. I trust what Chris Wallace tells me. You know, I trust what Martha McCallum tells me. I'm not too worried about them. But when you get start to get the proliferation of channels that are devoted to one man, that is bad. This happens in other countries a lot. You know, Hugo Chavez would get on TV and talk for six hours, you know. And, you know, this is not this is not a good situation. But what do you do? I mean, I don't know what I don't know what to do. So I'm very worried about that because I have family that are listening to One American News and they're saying, oh, yeah, like Mike Lindell proved that Dominion was behind uh, and so on. And then you say, OK, well, but that's not a trustworthy station. They're like, oh, well, you know, you just listen to the fake news and the, the evil MSM and, you know, they're all elite global. But anyway. So, yeah, I'm very depressed because since 1-6, you know, our family members saying, nope, Antifa. And I don't know what to, I, I can't convince them of anything. I say, look, we have the same values. We're family. We go way back. Obviously, you know, we, we share faith. You know, we share a, a, a broad worldview. And you are just completely wrong about these very basic facts. Consume multiple media sources. Nope. To what extent is... I'm pessimistic. Yeah, yeah. So I think you're probably the first outright pessimistic guest we've had so far. So that, that makes it that makes it very interesting. I'm in a mood, maybe. I mean, I, I'm usually a pretty <laughs> optimistic guy, you know. Um, uh, so, so my pessimism, I think, is mostly just Christmas and January with interacting with my, my family from South Alabama on these issues. And um, mm-hmm. just, I can't, failing to convince them that there wasn't massive voter fraud, just just a total inability to. Mm. This was this was very personally upsetting for me. Yeah, and to a large extent, this is you know folks not trusting the elites, right? I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Martin Gurry book, yep. Revolt of the of the Public, where you know we, we've seen a number of crises in the in the in the recent past, you know, from 9/11 to financial crisis, and and you know you had the pandemic recently. And, you know, in situations where elites have been wrong about, um, you know, uh, causes and, and, and solutions, there is a, a massive uh, revolt against uh, people who are trying to, to inform them about, about what's going on. Yep. Well, they were wrong about the Iraq war. The elites were horribly wrong about that. And they were horribly wrong in various ways relating to the financial crisis. So, you know, I mean, Philip Tedlock has all this stuff on expert political prediction he's been working on for decades, and elites don't know much. So a few elites who do, and they're really nutty people who draw on huge amounts of data and update their views all the time. And he calls them super forecasters. And they can predict a few discrete variables maybe a couple of years into the future. But beyond five years, nobody at all anywhere knows what's going to happen. So it's, you know... When elites make predictions that go disastrously wrong, it's going to engender distrust in the public and people are going to be willing to believe anybody else. I think there's a human need to trust somebody. And so if they don't trust the elites, then they'll trust any grifter that comes along that tells them what they want to hear, which is exactly, I think, what's been happening in the case of things like QAnon and the the 1-6 riots and so on. Well, Professor Kevin Vallier, it's been uh, a pleasure talking to you. And yes. learning a you lot too. about trust. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so uh, thank you very much. And, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch.
Great. Great. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Discourse Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine, which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.